Welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg. This podcast is supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this episode, we turn our attention to the heartbreaking war in Sudan that started on April 15th, 2023 in Khartoum. Our first guest, Monsul Asal, professor of social anthropology at the University of Khartoum and also a professor at the University of Bergen, will provide us with a comprehensive overview of the current war and its roots. For this currently devastating war, I think we need to have a bit of a background of the country. It's one of the very complex countries in Africa. Sudan got its independence from Britain in 1956, and much of it is post-colonial history is actually dominated by the military because we had long military dictatorships and very short uh, multi-party democratic governments. Then we are joined by Dr. Iman Ahmed, a global health specialist with a focus on migration and refugee studies. She gives the perspective of healthcare and doctors working at the forefront in Sudan. First of all, please allow me to salute my colleagues who are at the forefront and on the ground throughout this war. I think they have been really showing an example of bravery, of selflessness, risking their lives on a daily basis. They have their families also that they need to cater for, yet still they continue to deliver. Finally, we have Dr. Khalid Mustafa Medani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University, who brings a wealth of knowledge on the political and humanitarian landscape in Sudan. All of these crises cannot be solved militarily and there requires a political solution. And that is something that uh, also international agents should really participate in. I am not saying that they should take a position that's up to Sudanese, but I do think it's vital that there is an understanding that given the severity of the crisis, that there must be a much more energetic international attention to resolving the political crisis. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Starting this episode is a conversation with Monsul Asal, professor of social anthropology at the University of Khartoum and at the University of Bergen. Monsul shares a first-hand account of the Sudanese civil war, having experienced it on set during his two-month stay in Khartoum. He begins by telling us a brief background of Sudan's post-colonial history, which is a complex one, marked by military dictatorships, a short-lived democratic era, the military coup in 2021, and finally the situation in Sudan today. As an anthropologist specializing in refugee studies, Monsul provides a comprehensive overview of the devastating war, tracing its roots to political struggles and disagreements over security sector reform. The conversation sheds light on the web of ethnic, economic and political cleavages within Sudan, particularly in the war-torn region of Darfur. Uh, I was in Sudan, actually, when the war started. I was there for two months. I experienced it firsthand in Khartoum. And then my family and I uh, managed to go to Port Sudan. And from there, I um, left to Norway because uh, I, I have some work here to do. And felt uh, I'll be more useful by coming here instead of being incarcerated there, uh, where conditions are quite difficult for an academic to do any kind of work. Uh, my family is now in the UAE. They're fine, they're safe, and I'm here. I am an anthropologist, and actually my major work was on refugees. I did my PhD years back in Norway on Sudanese and Somali refugees while living here. And in that research, I was just trying to answer three basic questions. Why people come to Norway? How do they get here? And what plans do they have for the future? I was done with that. I was back to Sudan teaching anthropology and uh, following what was happening in the country. For this currently devastating war, I think we need to have a bit of a background of the country. It's one of the very complex countries in Africa. Sudan got its independence from Britain in 1956. And much of it is post-colonial history. It's actually dominated by the military because we had long military dictatorships and very short multi-party democratic governments that were you know, not sustainable for a number of reasons. 
Of course, the last dictator, Sudan Han, was uh, one of the Islamists that came to power through a military coup in 1989. And it was overthrown by a popular uprising that started uh, 2018, and the government was overthrown in April 2019. Now, what followed since April 2019 was a very difficult transition where the military and civilians shared power. That uh, agreement was brokered by the African Union and they got. And the idea was to have a, a short transition, three to four years transition, that would be followed by you know transparent democracy, and that we will have a, a civilian government. But due to the fact that the military was so entrenched in Sudan, in Sudan politics, that power sharing didn't work. And uh, what made it worse was that in Sudan, since 2013, we have two military bodies in the country. We have the regular Sudan Armed Forces. But we also have a paramilitary force that's called the Rebbe Support Forces, which was created by the former regime and was part of the atrocities that happened in Darfur from 2003, actually, up to the present time. The current war started in uh, the 15th of April this year. It started in Khartoum because that was heavy concentration of, of the surrounding armed forces and the militia. And then it, it, it spread into other parts of the country. Now, the, the key factor that led to the uh, war was the disagreement over security sector reform. The civilian governments were saying that there should be one army that's professional and that shouldn't be part of running the, the country. Initially, the Sudan Armed Forces agreed, but then at the final stage of uh, the agreement that was to be signed, the political framework agreement, the army suddenly pulled out. And just uh, a week later, the war started. But, you know, there were signals since 2021 that a war is coming because in 2021, in October, the military sacked the civilian government, arrested the prime minister and his ministers, and they just took power, you know. But to the extent that they were faced with fierce resistance by the Sudanese people, and particularly the young women and men, they failed to form a government. Actually, until the beginning of the war, Sudan was, was having no government. There was no prime minister. They were just caretaker people. And when the war started, the situation was actually quite bad because after the military coup, the international financial institutions rescinded their decision to help Sudan. There were prospects of debt relief. Those were scrapped after the military coup. Sudan was back to the circle of international isolation. The economy was doing bad. And the war actually was the final blow to whatever hope that was there in the country. Now, uh, the war, as I said, it started in Khartoum, but it then uh, spilled over. And Darfur was actually the, the battle of the war. And one of the things that we need to put into consideration was that Darfur has always been at war since 2003. It has never been peaceful. And uh, this war devastated it again. And one thing that also makes the Darfur's situation quite unique and difficult was that there were local level dynamics that were part and parcel of the macro level political quarrels that, that have been taking place for a long time in Sudan. Communities are already pitted against each other. You have farmers against farmers, farmers against pastoralists, and pastoralists against pastoralists, the so-called Arabs versus those who are non-Arabic groups, and all of that. And the both the Sudan Armed Forces and, and the Rebbe Support Forces draw their soldiers from those communities. But at the same time, the Rebbe Support Forces seems to, to be having the upper hand in Darfur as we speak because it succeeded to drive the army from three major towns in the region, Niala, which is the state capital, Darinja, which is the capital, and Jinana, which is the state capital. And the fear was that the atrocities that were committed 20 years ago are now being repeated. Unfortunately, under our watch, and there, there seems to be very little that can be done to stop the atrocities, especially in Western Darfur State. And just a few days back, we read reports about uh, massacres in a place called Ardamata, which is not far from the from the state capital. So there are variations, of course. While in Khartoum, the war was just concentrated on the three twin cities, Khartoum, Undurman, and Khartoum North, where looting, you know, and ransacking and pillage, you know, occupying people's homes, kicking people out, stealing cars. But of course, also the, the bombardment by the Sudan Armed Forces airstrikes and the artillery shelling is actually wreaking a lot of havoc, killing people, destroying public and private properties, and all of that. And the industrial base of the country has been brought to rubble. you know, it was simply destroyed. 
and people lost everything. People got killed. And as I started this podcast, personally, I was subjected to a lot of serious situations. I had at one point gun at my head. So the war is really ravaging the country. And the serious thing in that the longer it continues, the more protracted it becomes, the more complex it becomes. And the danger of the country descending into a civil war is actually becoming quite imminent. Thank you. This is an incredibly helpful overview. And I just have a, a couple of questions to ask you. So when we're thinking about the Sudanese armed forces on the one hand and the rapid support forces on the other, do they map at all onto these other cleavages that you were talking about within Darfur? You said that the rapid support forces have tended to have more support in this area, but should we think about these in terms of ethnic cleavages between Arab and non-Arab groups or between different tribes or families? Should we think about them in terms of economic cleavages? Because you'd mentioned pastoralists and farmers. How should we understand the relationship between these two main groups and those in these outlying areas that get swept up into this? And even the, the relationships across those areas, like what matters? Well, you know, historically, the Western Sudan in general, and Darfur in particular, has been the, the area from where the Sudan Armed Forces draw its soldiers. The rank and file of the Sudan Armed Forces is actually from Western Sudan and Darfur in particular. Now, the Arabic Support Forces was created by soldiers from Darfur when it started, you know, uh, in 2008 as a part of the Sudan Armed Forces counterinsurgency, you know, strategies, because the terrain in Darfur was very difficult. The army cannot maneuver, and that was why they created this militia. They started with the so-called border guards, which was a regular division of Sudan Armed Forces. And then gradually they got into this support forces, which is actually, when it started, it was basically composed of soldiers from the Arabic-speaking pastoral groups. But to the extent that the privileges and the money they are getting was quite lucrative. Everyone actually wanted to get into the rebel support forces, including those ethnic groups that were apparently having problems with the Arabic-speaking groups. So at one point in time, the rebel support forces included everybody, not only Western Sudan and Darfur, but even from the all parts of the country, from Eastern Sudan, from the northern part of the country, from Khartoum area. And I think even down, you've got a lot of soldiers from the rebel support forces and their officers who are from all over the country. But in Darfur, because of the, of the war that started in 2003 and the atrocities that happened, you get the, the sense that uh, the rebel support forces main body is actually made up of, of soldiers from Arab speaking group, which is true, more or less. But this doesn't mean that other groups who are non Arabic speaking are not part of, of the rebel support forces. They are part of, uh, of the rebel support forces. When we're looking locally, say we're looking within Darfur, to what extent should we think of this as being about the political economy, as the sort of grievances of pastoralists versus farmers, or should we thinking about it as ethnic? Like, what's the main tensions at the local level within Darfur that then get sort of promoted and exercised through this? Well, I think I think there are two key issues here. One of them is unequal development. Therefore, if compared to other parts of the country, especially the central and northern part of the country, is less privileged in terms of development projects. The only paved way that Darfur with the rest of the country was uh, completed in 2013, you know, uh, that is the, the, the fairest thing. The second thing that explains a lot of what's happening is the central government policy of divide and rule. The center has really been very instrumental and good, although in a very bad way, of pitting the different groups together. It has been supporting the Arab-speaking groups at certain point of time. It has been supporting the non-Arab-speaking groups at other point in time. And when this war started, actually one of the factors that led to the atrocities in West Darfur state was the deliberate policy by the Sudan armed forces of arming some of the non-Arab-speaking groups to stand against the Arab support forces and their allied uh, militias, of course. So on the one hand, you have a lack of development that uh, meant that there were no enough options for people because in a situation whereby people can only have two key options of either being pastoralists or farmers, they are bound to come into clashes with, with each other. Because in areas where we have environmental problems, lack of pastures, lack of water, those who have animals will have to look for areas where they can breed their herds. 
and those areas are the ones that are used by the farmers. So you, you've got these clashes. And, uh, and, and on the other hand, on top of this, you have the central governments meddling with local variations and differences by adopting policies of divide and rule. Sometimes they, they create divisions even within the same ethnic group, you know, by creating rival political positions within the native administration. Thank you. This is, again, extremely helpful. I'm very sorry for the state of, of Sudan. I mean, it's had a very, as you acknowledged and, and noted, a very long and hard history. It's been sad to see it coming back to, to war, essentially. I'm very glad you're safe and that your family is, but for the many people who aren't, I feel very sorry for them. So appreciate your taking time, though, to join us and to give us some insights into the state of affairs in, in Sudan today. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next guest is Dr. Iman Ahmed, a global health specialist with a focus on migration and refugee studies. Dr. Iman brings a unique perspective, having earned her medical degree from the University of Khartoum and also worked with doctors and with the medical system in the Sudanese diaspora. As a practitioner, Dr. Iman's journey spans from working in war zones with the United Nations to her current role as the Secretary of External Affairs for the Sudan Doctors' Union in Canada. She talks about the challenges her colleagues face on the forefronts in Sudan, where the health system grapples with increased demand and systematic issues that predate the conflict. Iman also talks about the inspiring initiatives and technical support projects undertaken by the Sudan Doctors' Union. This offers a glimpse into proactive measures taken to address the critical gaps in healthcare. Dr. Iman, thank you for joining us. I'm particularly excited to have you with us because you both got your degree at the University of Khartoum in medical science and as a doctor, and also have been working with doctors and with the medical system and individual in the diaspora and with groups in Sudan Doctors Abroad Network. First, I, I just want to thank you again for joining us and to ask you to give us just a brief background in terms of your experience both in Sudan and then in the diaspora. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and it's a pleasure to be with you today as well. It's true that I got my medical degree in Sudan and then my graduate studies outside of Sudan. I did a master's in migration and refugee studies at the American University in Cairo and my master of public health from University College Cork. In terms of my practice, once I left Sudan, life has taken me into a, uh, an interesting path, I would say. I've always had an interest in public health, and that's the path I have uh, gotten. And I also started working with refugees immediately thereafter in Egypt. And once I moved to Canada again, and then continued to work with the United Nations. I worked for many years with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and that took a lot of trouble and working in war zones and uh, public health emergencies. And later with WHO since uh, 2010. I continued working in countries of humanitarian emergencies around the world, supporting the health system and always at the forefront, outbreak control. So I worked a lot with uh, displaced communities, both internally and externally as refugees, those who crossed international borders and in very complex uh, humanitarian emergencies. As you said, right now, I am the Secretary of External Affairs of the Sudan Doctors Union in Canada, which is a not-for-profit that we have established. We came together around 2018 out of a need to support our home country, Sudan, and to unify our voices and to have more impact for all the support that each individual, each one of us was doing towards the home country and in support of our colleagues and in solidarity with our uh, other diaspora doctors groups around the world. So that's how it started, and we continue our work in support of Sudan. Thank you. Thank you. I want to come back to the work that you're doing with the communities on the ground in Sudan, but can you give us a sense of the challenges and the particular challenges both that your colleagues who are doctors in Sudan are facing and that the people of Sudan are facing in the current civil war? Absolutely. It's uh, it's very unfortunate for our people in Sudan that this civil war broke out at a time when the health system itself was already almost destroyed because that destruction was the result of years of eroding all the basics of the health system in terms of health financing, in terms of uh, 
service delivery as well for remote areas of Sudan and not only remote, but it started as I always call it or describe it, the system has shrunken from its periphery. The services became very centralized and uh, they became also following a model of fee-for-service. So privatized, centralized, very much, I would say, dysfunctional because it, it's not as we used to have in the 1980s and 90s until the Omar al-Bashir regime came. We had a proper model of primary health care where not everybody had to come to the capital all the way or to the big cities in order to receive some basic treatments, where not everybody had to take their child and travel abroad to neighboring countries to receive treatment for malaria, for example. So uh, the system was already eroded. When this war hit, many hospitals became non-functional immediately, and I think that was a major hit from uh, the beginning, pardon me. Just to clarify, when we're talking about the centralization of the healthcare system, I mean, there's two ways of thinking about it, right? There's the way of thinking about the control, but at the same time, the medical facilities in more outlying areas remain strong. But what I'm hearing you say is that it wasn't just about where in the healthcare administration was it, it being centralized, but rather that really the outlying and peripheral areas were losing medical capacity at the same time. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. And if I may explain it a little bit, maybe the word centralized has a double-edged sword, if we may say. But Sudan is a vast country. The model of centralization is the antidote or the opposite of decentralized services, which we believe is the model that suits a vast country like Sudan with various peoples, cultures, uh, terrain, and so on. That centralization eroded the primary uh, healthcare infrastructure in terms of all the health systems building blocks that covers uh, financing, health workforce, and service delivery, in addition to the other areas. So denying the remote areas of Sudan, these services meant people sought service immediately at the secondary care level. So for very basic services, and that created an extreme overload but yet, to a government that wanted to charge fee-for-service, it guaranteed that that money is pooled at a, a more centralized level in the hands of those in power. And then when you're combining that with the fee-for-service, I mean, it also strikes me that we're talking about the poor and those who are basically already marginalized as now being also unable to get access, right? So that we're looking at the periphery in terms of the geographic locations, but also looking at a set of a class that's unable to get healthcare as much as it had before. And I just want to know, double check that that's also an, a fair characterization of what the healthcare system looked like before the war. That's absolutely right, because as you noted, it was a multi-layered impact both on the geographically remote areas and not very remote, but not the big cities. And the policies were definitely not pro-poor at all. The policies were meant for those who have money and could afford to travel to those big cities in order to receive the services that are charged for uh, higher, ever-increasing fees. That's practically the case, yes, indeed. And then when you're looking at the local and peripheral areas, their response to this, were there the establishment of NGOs or the establishment of other organizations or were groups like yours working with the marginalized people before? In other words, were there associations and groups trying to fill in these gaps before we had the current civil war? I must admit that even though these groups existed and were expanding their support and groups like ours in the diaspora were lending uh, tremendous support to our colleagues on the ground, as a public health physician, I have to be honest that no NGO, no civil society group, no diaspora group can replace the government health system. Why? Because Sudan is a country in the heart of Africa. We are still dealing with lots of outbreaks. Just a simple thing, the surveillance system to detect outbreaks, to flag alerts, and to trigger response is something that sits with the government. So no matter what we do, somehow we relied on the government system. Another issue is also to mobilize action. Sometimes 
you can do as much, yet at a point in time, you will have to come face-to-face -face with the government interface. While trying to support our uh, colleagues, we had to find some solutions for that. We had to establish dialogue and encourage our colleagues on the government side to work together. We have succeeded to a large extent, yet there are areas that remain tremendously problematic in terms of difficulty, for example. Our colleagues on the ground have not received their salaries. These are the doctors inside Sudan. While working at the forefront of a war response, risking their lives every day, they haven't received their salaries. They live in quarters where they are housed because not always are they from the same city where they work. So the basics of living conditions, having their salaries, they're now under really challenging living conditions because of their doctors' uh, living quarters. And this is one of the areas we're trying to respond to as well. I was just going to ask, what do you do as an organization to alleviate these problems? Thank you. Our model of support, basically, I would like to mention that we believe in localization of the health response. And we are also very happy that very recently, right before the war broke in Sudan, that our partners, our colleagues in Sudan have elected a uh, the first committee of Sudan's doctors' unions. And that's a reestablishment of a, an organization that existed long before the war, deep into the history of Sudan, but was banned by the Omar Bashir government. And this is the first elected grassroots doctors' union to reestablish itself after nearly 40 years now. The doctors' union is our main counterpart inside Sudan as well. And the doctors' union has representatives from all of the different areas, or how is that constructed? Absolutely, and we are very happy to share that. It is represented around the Sudan, and the uh, elections came from the very... Uh, it's a very much a grassroots uh, organization in terms of representing the doctors around the world. So each region elected its representatives and these people were then promoted to the mid-level and so on up to the level of the committee that has been selected right now. Excellent, excellent. Now, of course, I mean, wars, unfortunately, are divisive, right? So I'm curious to hear if, if there are ways in which the war itself has not only worsened conditions on the ground and made it both the demand obviously increased, but also made it harder to do their job. But has it also created difficulties to organize and coordinate the medical doctors? I think our colleagues on the ground have faced challenges and difficulties. And the good thing is that when it comes to healthcare issues, when it comes to rejecting and standing against the attacks on healthcare, conditions of service for doctors, for all the health professionals, we can very much say we have a unified voice around these subjects. However, of course, there are some divisions and who is supporting whom and who wants this stone to be ameliorated and not condemning this group. And uh, I must say, this is one of the areas where everybody is learning by practice. I happen to have a solid background in human rights. Since the war started, we've been working closely with our colleagues to very much ground and root the uh, principles of medical neutrality. We did a lot of work around that. What impartiality means, we have held some uh, webinars and talks bringing experts from Canada, from the UK, and colleagues who have been working basically in the juncture of health and human rights to really explain these concepts. And even lawyers who are also partners and members of our organizations. I'm also a member of the Sudan Doctors for Human Rights organization. So we are also working around these areas. And it is a challenge, but I think it, it's a long path of learning while practicing and responding. It's fascinating, right? Because when we think about the kinds of challenges that you would be facing, you know, it's easy to focus on, like I said, the increasing numbers of injured and the medical crisis part of it, right? But that's a different thing than then also trying to think about how to work in the context of conflict like this. So that's great work. Can you tell us a little bit about the other projects that you have or the other ways in which you're engaging with local doctors or the medical establishment more generally? For sure. First of all, please allow me to salute my colleagues who are at the forefront and on the ground throughout this war. I think they have been really showing an example of bravery, of selflessness, 
risking their lives on a daily basis. They have their families also that they need to cater for, yet still they continue to deliver. Our work uh, has many aspects. One of, of these aspects is providing technical support, remote technical support. I think we do have a good experience from the time of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, where our colleagues around the world have provided remote support, but on a, on a direct basis, sometimes providing live technical advising to people who are resuscitating a patient, for example. We set up some systems to enable that in various countries, in the US, in the UK, from Australia, anesthesiologists came together to provide support. Radiologists were receiving those x-rays of, of patients in the uh, COVID-19 isolation center, for example, and providing their uh, technical review and then bouncing it back. So we also held multiple lectures around uh, the various topics. The same is happening now because number one, the collapse of the service and the focus on trauma and injuries has come at the expense of other services for people with chronic diseases, for children seeking services and so on. So we are trying to help our colleagues by covering that gap, not only by advising our colleagues, but by providing direct consultations. So in multiple countries, our uh, teams of doctors in diaspora have set up some uh, confidential lines of communication and they are providing direct consultation. It's really been very useful. Some of this is being quantified, but some of it is just happening as a very organic response to the war and lack of services. Thank you. That's fabulous. Really fantastic and, and excellent work. It's heartening to hear proactive and constructive response. I'm wondering for listeners who are interested in, in being supportive either of Sudan Doctors Abroad kind of more specifically or just generally saying to themselves, what can I do? What do you think people can do who are not well-placed like you to provide this kind of support? We do have a donations campaign, and through that campaign, we have at the Sudan Doctors' Union in Canada. We've been successful in supporting Al-Ghadarif Hospital with trauma, emergency response, intensive care unit, and more recently, without break response. They, they, they needed simple things like fixing the toilets, for example, resuming water supply to the hospital. And we have contributed to that. Right now, the same campaign is on and I can share the link. If you would uh, share it with your audiences, we'll be very happy to receive donations on that uh, link. It's on a global campaigning website that enables donations from around the world. Basically, our focus now is to support our colleagues with their uh, living uh, conditions, just like basic support that goes directly, that pays the cost of their food and accommodation and so on and to continue our support to the uh, hospitals that are delivering care to help with reopening some uh, centers where lots of uh, internally displaced persons have moved outside of Khartoum and then they dispersed to Shendi and Merawi and Western Sudan and Damazin and all of these places didn't have the capacity to respond to these numbers of people. So these are some of the areas, of course, outbreak response, supporting our colleagues with this and that. Uh, helping with supplies as well. We have generated donations from around the world, not only us in Canada, but our colleagues are also generating donations and mobilizing in-kind donations. There have been some difficulties with custom clearance and so on, but some of these initiatives have been uh, successful. For us in Canada, we have found that providing the funds directly to our colleagues in Sudan and working with them on the financial systems and monitoring and so on, to make sure that these funds benefit the end user have been the most uh, cost-effective mode. Thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll share that link in the episode notes. And again, I just want to thank you for taking time to discuss your work and the conditions and situation in Sudan with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. And let's uh, hope the war just ends and our people regain their peace, prosper. Thank you. The third and final guest for this episode is Dr. Khaled Mustafa Medani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University. Dr. Khaled emphasizes the urgent need for international attention to address humanitarian aid delivery challenges. With 6 million displaced persons within Sudan and over 1.2 million refugees in neighboring countries, the situation is dire. 
Dr. Khalid gives us an overview of the challenges faced by humanitarian agencies, including the destruction of infrastructure in Khartoum, urban warfare, and the use of aid as a weapon by warring parties. He also highlights the lack of funding and international attention due to competing crises globally. He further explains how the Sudanese diaspora has transformed its role, moving beyond traditional remittances to mobilize significant initiatives. He mentions specific diaspora initiatives, from large organizations to grassroots movements that are supporting vulnerable groups. As the discussion wraps up, Dr. Khalid stresses that the Sudanese crisis requires both humanitarian and political solutions. Thank you so much, Dr. Khalid, for being a guest in the podcast. So first of all, I would like to ask you to kindly introduce yourself to our audience. Yes, well, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's a real honor. My name is Khalid Mustafa Madani, and I am Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University, where I'm also the chair of the African Studies Program, and I'm the director of the Institute of Islamic Studies. And my research uh, interest has been historically on the political economy of Islamist movements in the Middle East and Africa, with a special focus actually on Egypt, Sudan, and uh, Somalia. And uh, my other research interest that I'm currently working on now is on uh, civil conflict, particularly in the Horn of Africa. And, and in this case, I'm working on a project on Sudan and the war in Sudan. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Khalid. My first question is about the challenges facing the humanitarian aid delivery in Sudan for the affected displaced population in Sudan at the moment. So what are the challenges facing the humanitarian aid delivery? And maybe you can give us a brief description of the humanitarian situation at the moment. Yes, well, thank you for that question. Let me, uh, first of all, give a brief kind of overview of the humanitarian situation, because that will give your listeners an idea of the challenges of humanitarian relief without understanding the consequences of, of the war, it's difficult to talk about the challenges. Over the last uh, seven months since the war began in uh, Sudan on April 15th, what we've seen is an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe, really. The Doctors Without Borders, in a recent uh, report on the humanitarian situation, has called it a failure of humanity. Uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is that the nature of the war has spread from Khartoum, the capital city, on April 15th, very quickly throughout the country and particularly in the Darfur region, which now really is witnessing some of the most horrific, not only humanitarian situation, but human rights violation, verging, verging on not only ethnic uh, cleansing, but uh, genocidal kind of violence. So that is really important to really keep in mind. With that, of course, has become a humanitarian crisis that is really difficult to describe. We have now 6 million displaced persons within Sudan, 1.2 or more refugees in the borders, in the bordering countries. And um, the vast majority of those who have been killed and are in danger of starvation are women and children. And so that gives you kind of the depth of the crisis. In addition to that, there is urban warfare in one of Africa's largest countries, Khartoum. Over 8 million people reside in Khartoum. And basically, it has become a war zone that is a combination of aerial bombardments on the part of the, the Sudan army, battling uh, paramilitary militias called the Rapid Support Forces in the capital city itself. So that urban warfare has led to a huge humanitarian crisis. The infrastructure of Khartoum, the capital city, has been completely, basically destroyed. The healthcare system has been completely destroyed, leading to not only deaths, but even as a result of extrajudicial killings and the bombing, but also death from what are communicable diseases, including malaria, um, other forms of diseases that could be cured, such as diabetes. So you're having 70% of the hospitals and healthcare clinics and services have been destroyed. 
And so the challenge uh, for humanitarian agencies and relief is, of course, the severity of the war and the fact that um, it is very difficult to assure the safety of healthcare providers in the capital and throughout the country. And that, of course, has also led to the kind of lack of intervention on the part of international aid workers. Doctors Without Borders is one of the few international organizations that is actually delivering uh, healthcare services. And uh, that is really important. In addition to that, there has been, if you don't mind me saying, a lack of attention to this grave humanitarian crisis because of what's going on in the Middle East and, of course, in Ukraine and elsewhere. And that has led to essentially a lack of funding for humanitarian agencies such as the United Nations Commission for Refugees and other humanitarian organizations. The promised uh, funding coming from the international organizations and the international community has simply not arrived. In addition to that, I want to kind of emphasize another form of uh, challenge, and that is the political one. As uh, the Doctors Without Borders has uh, also articulated in their reporting, we have basically aid being used as a weapon on the part of the warring parties. Uh, That, of course, is very common in the context of what we call complex emergencies. But this includes a variety of different uh, challenges, including the restriction on movement of healthcare providers and aid providers. It includes, in the case of, let's say, the armed forces banning certain supplies that may be going to hospitals in areas controlled in Khartoum by the militia. So you have administrative blockages, uh, you have the redirecting of aids, and you have the refusal to give even travel permits for aid agencies, not only international ones, but, uh, but those on the ground. In addition to that, what has kept um, the situation or many Sudanese alive has been the voluntary ethic of local organizations. Since uh, April 15th, uh, Sudanese in Khartoum and elsewhere have relied on themselves. The first responders have been uh, young people who previously, before the war, had led the pro-democracy movement in terms of grassroots organizations. Those have been transformed essentially into aid delivery organizations based on volunteerism. And that is uh, really essential. Now, those people, young people who have been delivering medical supplies, uh, providing first aid, all sorts of basic services and necessities to uh, the injured population are facing uh, great security risks. And many of them have now had to flee Khartoum to go to outlying areas. Just to give you an example of the displacement and why there are both challenges and opportunities, 66% of the displaced persons that I mentioned have uh, returned to their region of origin for safety. What that has meant is that the Khartoum, greater Khartoum area is woefully lacking in uh, personnel in order to deal with this grave humanitarian emergency. On the flip side of that, with 66% of displaced people going outside of Khartoum, there are certain areas, outlying areas, where aid is being delivered, not only by the Doctors Without Borders, but a variety of local aid delivery agencies. And here is a capacity that we need to speak about in terms of how the international community can actually provide aid delivery that can be very effective. And I mentioned that because there is a great deal of discussion among international, the international community and international organization that, well, there's very little that can be done. And that is uh, not true. There is much more to be done with respect to providing aid in outside of Khartoum, and not only in Khartoum, but outside, in areas with uh, relative safety. That becomes really important. There's a great deal that can be done in helping refugees who are, you know, languishing in Chad or Ethiopia, Egypt, South Sudan, even the Central African Republic and and South Sudan, of course. And there is a great deal of aid that can be delivered effectively to these areas. So that understanding the geography and the nature of the war can also help us understand the challenges of humanitarian delivery, but also it can open up um, a discussion about the opportunities. 
And so I want to kind of punctuate this in conclusion to the answer by noting that in Cairo, just uh, beginning uh, on between the 18th until today, as you may know, a very large humanitarian conference that was organized by international organizations such as the Norwegian Refugee Council, but also a, a host of um, Sudanese civil society organizations based in Sudan, but also in the diaspora. And uh, the positive element of this very important uh, conference in Cairo is that it looks at the different sectors that can be looked at in terms of intervening and offering humanitarian assistance, uh, ranging from logistics, from issues having to do with the health sector, but also human rights, such as the, the violence meted out against women, for example, a variety of different issues where the Sudanese civil society organizations who organize this are coming up with, and in, they will in a few days, a blueprint, a roadmap, if for lack of better terms, in terms of uh, what the situation is in Sudan, what sectors are most affected, and how the international community can assist Sudanese inside and, and uh, in coordination with the Sudanese diaspora outside to intervene effectively in this conflict in Sudan. And so it's very important for us to highlight that because this is a, a great kind of a network and initiative that can be easily assisted. They're awaiting and there will be, of course, asking for financial assistance from international organizations. And I think it's a great opportunity uh, for the international community to provide effective aid and increase aid to save the lives of Sudanese. Thank you so much, Dr. Khaled, for this overview and outlining the challenges facing the humanitarian aid in Sudan. Uh, you mentioned the diaspora and the engagement of the Sudanese diaspora, whether in Egypt or elsewhere. How do you see the engagement of the Sudanese diaspora? And maybe can you give us some examples of the Sudanese diaspora initiatives to support the community back home in Sudan seven months after the crisis? You mentioned the conference in Cairo, which is a great example, but also what are other examples of the diaspora organizations and initiatives and groups working in different countries to support Sudan? Yes, thank you for that question. It's extremely important. Uh, there are um, approximately 4.5 million Sudanese in the diaspora, whether it's in the Gulf or Europe or the United States and elsewhere. And historically, the Sudanese diaspora has always helped uh, through the sending of, of remittances, sending of funds, primarily to family. And so it was really a kind of an assistance of the diaspora in terms of daily living for their Sudanese families. But ever since the war, the diaspora has really kind of transformed in terms of their role vis-a-vis -vis Sudan. Initially, as the war began, the diaspora was really engaged in providing emergency fund to families. And the idea was, uh, of course, as you can imagine, among many in the diaspora, that this uh, war hopefully would end in due time in, or in short period of time. But what has happened recently, at least over the last four months or so, is that there has been a realization among groups uh, abroad that uh, the war is uh, not only very severe, but will continue for some time. And what you see now is the great initiatives on the part of the Sudanese diaspora in terms of not only raising funds, but coordinating within Sudan as much as possible to actually get those funds um, to institutions like healthcare institutions and uh, to provide as much assistance as possible. One example is this conference that uh, we just spoke about, which uh, has a whole um, kind of uh, group of, um, of Sudanese organizations that are trying to make up uh, one of the weaknesses historically of the diaspora, even with this war, and that is the lack of coordination among diaspora groups. And so what we see now in a very positive way is that different diaspora groups who had been kind of separately raising funds and helping families are, have now realized that they have to be helping Sudan in the long term. And the best way to do that, given the severity of the conflict, is to actually establish a network of groups in the diaspora. The majority who assist actually uh, are in the United States. You know, we have about 450 groups worldwide who are active diaspora groups, and over 50% are in the U.S., Others are in Europe, in the UK in particular, and a number in the Gulf countries. But it's in North America where they are uh, most active. I mentioned that because, you know, as a Sudanese, I'm also signaling to Sudanese in the Gulf, in the Gulf countries, that they can actually meet the challenge that is being met by, by Sudanese uh, organizations in North America and in the UK, which is really important. 
Another very important example that uh, I think you had a member, a very prominent member of the Sudan Doctors Union that uh, also spoke in your podcast. And that is a, a phenomenal example of the diaspora working in tandem, not only with each other abroad, but with the Sudan Doctors Union personnel in Sudan itself. And they are working on a number of things. Number one, coordinating in Sudan Doctors Union in Sudan, but also coordinating with each other abroad. There are about six branches in Canada, the United States, in, in Ireland, in London, that are working to uh, expand the kind of funding that can be sent. But they work, as uh, I think hopefully my colleagues from the Sudan Doctors' Union informed you, to revive the healthcare system, reopen hospitals and emergency rooms, uh, restore primary health care, prevent communicable diseases, and also really deal with uh, some of the diseases such as diabetes and cancer, those kind of diseases that are not being attended to in the context of this uh, conflict. And so the Sudan Doctors Union is a great example. Another very important group is uh, the resistance committees themselves, the grassroots organizations. And I spoke to some of them, for example, who are based in Cairo now, when I was there last. I had long discussions with them, and they have an elaborate uh, network, very sophisticated, that allows Sudanese in the diaspora to send funding and not only send it uh, to different regions, they give people like me in the diaspora a choice, whether we want our funding to go to, let's say, our home neighborhood or city, or if we would prefer it to go to a larger fund that is controlled or organized by these grassroots organizations, resistance committees. In addition to that, they actually, believe it or not, even in the context of war, they give you a report, a short report through WhatsApp and or through your email that shows you where that money has gone. And so here you have once again the pro-democracy grassroots movement that had been fighting for accountability and democracy for so many years also continue to understand that the diaspora want to have accountability in terms of where their funds are going. That has to do with the politicization of aid uh, in Sudan. And now you can understand the context of, of what I'm saying. And we have also an organization, a wonderful one, that um, supports female tea sellers. In Sudan, selling tea is a great source of income for working-class Sudanese women in the urban areas throughout the country. And we have there's a wonderful organization in the diaspora that sends money directly to these women to help them with, with respect to even buying uh, supplies in order to generate income. Because in this context, you know, the majority of Sudanese, including women, cannot afford not to work despite the severity of the conflict. And so there are a variety of different organizations, some of them large ones like Sudan, you know, Doctors' Union, some of them micro-enterprise-oriented ones like the Tea Sellers Association in Sudan. And then, of course, you have the grassroots young people who have long been the mainstay of aid delivery to the local population in Sudan. Thank you, Dr. Khaled, for sharing this with us. I know also firsthand that tea is a very important part of the Sudanese culture. So I can imagine and understand how important it is to be a tea seller. So thank you for sharing this with us. My next question is about the mobilization and how those organizations and groups work to mobilize support in the diaspora. You mentioned that they also coordinate with local networks and local organizations back home in Sudan. But how are they organizing themselves in terms of raising funds or support from the diaspora members abroad? And maybe you can also tell us more about the challenges facing them. What would you recommend for them to do to better mobilize and to better organize their work? Thank you very much. The reason I gave the kind of a little bit of history of the Sunni diaspora is that historically they have been very much based on really helping family and kin but not in terms of providing funding for healthcare institutions in, and those kind of sustainable or rather long-term kind of aid. Very few Sudanese expected to witness this kind of devastation. And so that requires and has required the Sudanese diaspora to change their thinking, to understand that it's not only about helping your family and kin, which is very, very important, but now really it's about essentially saving the country and saving your communities and looking to the future for the younger generation. Generation. And so this is why the funding campaigns have changed. 
rather than going to your family or even your, let's say, neighborhood or kinship group that uh, occurred in the past. Now we have Sudanese diaspora, including, of course, Sudan Doctors Union, that are having larger campaigns that invite all Sudanese of all stripes uh, to provide this campaign. So all of the organizations I mentioned and the approximately 45 large ones have websites where you can donate. So that is a very important aspect. There are still banking institutions, believe it or not, outside of Khartoum, and there's a great deal of focus in terms of sending the funds to other regions outside of the capital because the capital is devastated. So places like North Kurdufan in Port Sudan on the eastern side, it's very, very important. So and as I said, there are networks of local aid workers that decide how to distribute those funds. Now, in terms of the challenges, and I can say this as Sudanese, is that we're still underdeveloped. This war is uh, relatively new, seven months. There's a, a learning curve, as the Americans likes to say. And that is that there is still a need to expand and coordinate uh, much better. There is a real big problem with respect to Sudanese diaspora groups and their relationship to international organizations. There has been real uh, a lack of coordination on the part of Sudanese diaspora and the international organizations. There are some international aid organizations that is chewed or refrained from actually supporting Sudanese diaspora because they feel that they need to support the local Sudanese and not to worry about the diaspora, which may be outside. I think that's the wrong way to go. I think now there's a great realization, thanks to your podcast and, and others, that it's very important in this uh, instance to increase and help to increase the capacity of Sudanese diaspora groups with the funding and the expertise of international organizations and to work in tandem with each other in order to del deliver this aid effectively on the ground. Number one, there is a change in the mindset of the Sudanese diaspora. The Sudanese diaspora has not been used to helping in this kind of civil conflict. And so now there's a change of thinking. There's a need to expand the campaigns for donors and not to work in silos. Sudanese historically have been very politicized community. And I think that now there is a consensus growing that we need to really coordinate across different political ideologies, across different ethnic groups, across the gender divide. All of that is uh, really happening very quickly, I have to say. Remember, seven months is not that long. But what I think this, these kind of podcasts can help us with is to also signal to the international aid agencies, not only MSF, uh, but the UNHCR and WHO and uh, WFP, that they have to engage much more with the uh, Sudanese diaspora, because otherwise their effectiveness in terms of aid delivery is not possible in the way that they would like to be effective. And that's where the impetus of the Conference on Humanitarian Delivery in Cairo was really about. That's kind of a culmination of what I'm saying right now. It's supposed to meet these challenges and make this relationship between the international agencies and the diaspora, Sudanese diaspora, more effective in coordinating with local Sudanese to deliver aid effectively. Thank you, Dr. Khaled. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end this interview? Yes, th thank you, Radir. What I'd like to add is that all of these crises cannot be solved militarily and there requires a political solution. And that is something that uh, also international agents should really participate in. I am not saying that they should take a position that's up to Sudanese, but I do think it's vital that there is an understanding that the, given the severity of the crisis, that there must be a much more energetic international attention to resolving the political crisis. So as you know, just a few days ago, UN Secretary General appointed a special envoy from Algeria to Sudan. That came on the heel of the ending of the mandate of the international mission in Sudan, the UN mission in Sudan. I think that's what the UN Secretary General is suggesting. And that is by appointing a special envoy to Sudan, this gives much more profile, not only to the humanitarian situation on the ground, but also to the future of Sudan, which is very, very important, and that must be based on a political solution. Already the civil society groups outside of Sudan and inside are working towards a dispensation that would help to resolve the conflict. And I want to mention the importance of that because I believe that attention on the humanitarian front must be accompanied by attention on the political front. 
this is a conflict that is affecting the stability of the entire region. And finally, of course, we want to highlight the severity of the violence in Darfur that is uh, devastating. It is conflict that is not only a result of local actors, but also regional and international actors. And that is really important to emphasize. So if we put all that together, the necessity to see the challenges and opportunities of humanitarianism in Sudan, that must be accompanied with a discussion that goes hand in hand around resolving this crisis politically. Thank you, Dr. Khaled. It's indeed a very devastating time in Sudan, but we wish all the efforts from the Sudanese diaspora and international organizations actually help people make things a little bit better for people who are suffering from this conflict, whether being displaced or affected in any other way. But thank you so much for your insights and we appreciate your time. Thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much and for your coverage of Sudan. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you found this episode interesting. Further information about our podcast guests and links to their work can be found in the episode description below. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast.